Every new year, there's pressure to work out, and it stops people from even starting. But starting is what matters most. So Peloton's made starting easy with up to $600 off Peloton bike purchases and two months free membership. Start moving with the Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, Tread, Row, or Guide, and thousands of classes with instructors ready to support you from day one. Shop Peloton's New Year offers at onepeloton.com slash deals. All access membership separate. Terms apply. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you in part by the generosity of the Secret Library Podcast Patreons. Get monthly solo episodes that take you behind the scenes of my own writing and behind the scenes of the podcast at patreon.com slash secret library. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Today we continue with season three, The Nourished Writer. My guest is Esme Weijin Wang, a novelist and essayist. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias from 2019, for which she won the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. Her debut novel, The Border of Paradise, was called a best book of 2016 by NPR and one of the 25 best novels of 2016 by Electric Literature. She was named by Granta as one of the best of young American novelists in 2017 and won the Whiting Award in 2018. Born in the Midwest to Taiwanese parents, she lives in San Francisco. I wanted to read part of her about page to let her speak in her own words, which are so beautifully written, as always. Quote, I believe in resilience. My enthusiasm for both the practice and living out of resilience are born out of my own daily existence with illness. I choose to live as best I can, and I encourage others living with chronic illness and other forms of limitation to do the same. Legacy is a tricky beast, but I approach it from the perspective of looking at one's impact, both big and small. Whether you think much about legacy or not, you are building your legacy every single day. Legacy can be the smile you leave on the cashier's face when you purchase a tube of hand cream. Legacy can also be the published book of your collected works. Unquote. She writes the blog, The Unexpected Shape, which contains resources for ambitious people living with limitations. It is linked in the show notes of this episode. Esme was the second ever guest on the podcast in 2016 when we discussed her novel, Border of Paradise. It is such a delight to have her back. And a little magical touch that you will hear in the episode is that it was quite a windy day in San Francisco when we recorded. And so you can hear the wind chimes blowing. We debated and decided that rather than reschedule, this is part of the atmosphere of this episode. It's a little bit like glitter over our conversation. So I'm very, very happy to introduce Esme Weijin Wang. Hi, Esme. Thank you so, so much for coming back on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you are, I mean, you were one of the first people I thought of when I was putting together the idea of this season being about the nourished writer or feeling, you know, nourished as a writer and dealing with real life, but also 
all of the questions I've been getting about people dealing with writing about difficult topics, because you've done that both in fiction and nonfiction. And also, yeah, why don't we start there? Why don't we start there? Because you've really gone into both in your novel and in your essay collection. You are so fearless in getting into the heart of the matter. And I'm wondering how you take care of yourself when you're addressing either material that's really personal to you and maybe challenging to the, the outside world, like with the, um, the collected schizophrenias, or you know, going into taboo topics as you did in your novel. Yeah, so I feel like with the novel and when I wrote The Border of Paradise, I really felt like that was going to be the only way I was going to be approaching writing about certain quote unquote taboo topics. Um, I, I, I didn't ever think I was going to write nonfiction seriously in any kind of way. So I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to write about mental illness, I'm going to write about it in fiction. So there was that kind of distance that I was able to manage by having things like psychosis and body dysmorphia and approaching topics like depression and suicide through the lens of a character. And I often say that even though people talk to me about the collected schizophrenias and all of the things I reveal in that book as being very brave and um, in terms of myself revealing very personal things in there, I always say the most revealing things that I write are in my fiction because I can hide behind characters and I can hide behind these imaginary people. And so in that way, I was able to be really vulnerable in Mm. my first book. And so there's that kind of protective layer that I could put between myself and these really scary things. And it was so different when I was writing The Collective Schizophrenias, especially when it came to writing about really sensitive topics. And I will say that different people feel differently about what topics are the most sensitive to them. So for me, it's not as sensitive to write about, say, having a psychotic episode. I mean, it's still sensitive, but it's not as sensitive to write about that as it is, say, to write about rape or sexual abuse or things like that. So the the essay John Doe Psychosis was one of the most difficult essays to write in that book. Mm. So when I was writing that, it was difficult for a number of reasons. I had to try and recount tough things. And I also had to make sure that I was being accurate. So I ended up going through literally thousands of pages of old journals to make sure that I was recounting these things accurately. And so that was really difficult. And so in terms of the actual writing, I mean, I have really practical things that I advise people like drink lots of water and take lots of breaks and make sure that you are, you know, if you can afford it, 
be in therapy while you're writing these things. You know, find a sliding scale therapist, find a counselor, find a a well-trained coach, find someone who can help you as you're mining the depths of the toughest things that you're trying to write about. And then in terms of writing the material, I I feel like there are little tricks and tips that I have in terms of writing John Dosaikos's I think working with a good editor, if you're working on a book project, is really important and having a good relationship with your editor is also important. With that essay in particular, I remember there is a part of that essay where I talk about rape and my editor in one um, cycle of edits came back to me and said, you don't actually describe the rape here. Um, Could we get some details here? Mm -hmm. And so I, in the next cycle of edits, instead of doing exactly what he had asked for and putting in the details of the rape, I wrote, this is why I don't describe the rape. And then I talk about the reasons that I I'm not describing the rape, so it's kind mm. of meta. Um, but I make these literary choices in that part of the essay. And so I think having um, having the confidence in your own writing to know why you're making certain choices and also having a good relationship with your editor if you have one Um so that they understand why you're making the choices you're making. I mean, I'm really proud of that section because I know Roxanne Gay also went through that um, mm-hmm. in her writing. Um, some people complained that they felt in Bad Feminist that she did not describe the gang rape that she went through. and. I mean, that sounds really weird. Yeah. Um, but, but, but that was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was, yeah, that was actually a, a complaint that people made. And, um, and sometimes you just have to have the confidence in yourself and your writing to be able to push back. Yeah, that is such a, that's such a weird phenomenon. We could probably do a whole episode just on that. But this sort of, the, what what does an audience get to ask for? What does a readership get to ask for when someone's writing from personal experience, or even when someone's writing something that's painful to write? It I find this both fascinating and horrifying when things like that happen and that kind of critique comes up. Because I mean, first of all, my question is why. <laughs> Also, because we know statistically people are less likely to have those details to provide when having been through that kind of experience. So it's not even necessarily accurate that the memory is there to give. And why do people want it? And then how as writers can you deal with, and I know I know you don't have the answer to this, it's just questions that I think about, <laughs> are how do we manage what's being asked for and and, and what it does to us to provide it. Yeah, and I, I think that it's 
really good if you don't want to provide certain things, whether it is a description of a rape or if it's um, if you're writing about I don't know int- intimate partner violence um, and you don't want to describe the actual um, depths of that kind of experience. I think it's really important to have that explanation in your mind, not just so that you can answer in interviews or whatever why you didn't include it, but just because I think it's important on an artistic level to be able to answer that for yourself so that you know that you're not just avoiding it to avoid it, but because it's it's a, a strength of the piece to, to be avoiding it. Um, so that there is um, there is a reason. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's to trust yourself en- enough to know that you're allowed to think about what your reason is and it can stay your reason even if some people don't like it. Because that's true even if you're not writing about something really personal and vulnerable. There's always going to be somebody who doesn't like something about something you wrote. Yeah, I think um, this reminds me also of something that I really love um, about uh, something that the actor Andrew Scott says about um, being a celebrity and answering questions about his personal life. Mm. He's known as playing Moriarty in Sherlock, but more recently as the quote-unquote hot priest in Fleabag. But he says in his interviews that there's a difference between, in, in his accent, privacy and secrecy. And he says that he's not a secretive person, but he is a private person. And I love that distinction because I think that I'm, I don't think I am a secretive person um, because I write about a lot of things. I'm pretty transparent and I do allow the reader to have access to a lot of my intimate details, but I do, I am kind of private um, when it comes to a lot of things in my life. And I do have delineations in my writing. And I think this is something that's also important in terms of being a writer um, is to know what you will and will not write about. These things can change too. I think there was a point in my life where I was pretty determined to never write about my marriage. And I allowed myself some flexibility with that once I started writing The Collected Schizophrenias. But I still pretty largely feel like there are a lot of things about my marriage that I will not write about. And that is because I've decided that a lot of that is not about me. That's about our life together. And that's about his life. And it's not mine to give. And I think that a lot of parents also feel this way about their children. Um, Their kids haven't necessarily given permission or there's a certain kind of consent that 
children, you know, this isn't just about writing, but also, you know, YouTubers, for example, or influencers on Instagram. Um, you know, there's a certain age that kids will get to where they don't want to be in all of the YouTube videos anymore. Um, right. So, yeah, that, that's something to consider also is what are the things you will and will not write about and why? And that it's okay to hold that line. Mm-hmm. I'm interested also in, if we may, how is it managing um, the writing process when you're writing about difficult, you're writing about difficult material on the one hand, but you're also, as we all are lately, dealing with unpredictable things in life and managing a writing routine um, that's workable for you? Because I think many of us struggle with that, but I thought you would have particular insight. Yeah, so I, that's a lot of the work that I do is helping people who self-define as ambitious, who live with limitations to reach their goals and to go after success, whatever their definition of success is. And so actually right now I'm working on a program called dream hunting with limitations. That is uh, all about that. And awesome. I, <laughs> and I, uh, there are some things that I, and so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that in a very systematic way, but in terms of, you know, 2020 in particular, and this weird year and the pandemic and, and as we are confronted with thing after thing after thing, I mean, I remember in the end of 2019 when I personally was looking toward 2020, it was really this year of, oh, in 2020, my new book is going to be due in December and then there's going to be the election in November. And those were really the big things that I thought 2020 was going to be about and then 2020 ended up being (laughs) what it is Um, yeah 2020 ended up being all these different things and I think in some ways people who have dealt with a lot of unpredictability and trauma and um in, in different ways whether that be illness or um death or different kinds of bereavement, et cetera, are more prepared for unpredictability. And I, I wrote an essay about this in the beginning of the pandemic for the cut. Um, I think it was called like chronic uncertainty or something like that. Um, because, um, Yeah, I think uh, so much of it has to do with figuring out a new game plan day by day and having to remind yourself that what may work today isn't necessarily going to work tomorrow. I think that something that people who don't live with 
this kind of chronic unpredictability can take for granted is that, for example, you can make plans and that your plans will, for the most part, be able to come to pass. And that's one of the things that living with chronic illness is one of the first that's one of the first things that chronic illness will teach you is that it's really hard to make plans. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether that be later for later that day or later that week, you can, you know, make a dinner plan with a friend for two days from then and have to cancel um, pretty readily, or you might make a trip plan for a trip or whatever, and then you'll get really sick Um, from a flare or whatnot, and that just won't work out. And so you kind of have to build that unpredictability into your life. Whereas I think without that understanding of that chronic unpredictability, you can kind of live your life for the most part um, with the understanding that when you make a plan, it will generally come to pass the way that you planned it. And so with this year... um, and the pandemic and with everybody living in this really intense kind of unpredictability, you know, um, the kids are going to go to summer school or the kids are going to go to summer camp. Oh, wait, they're not going to go to summer camp. Um, the kids are, (laughs) the kids are going to go to school. Wait, they're, they're going to be remote again. Um, it, all of this unpredictability, uh, I mean, this applies for writing, to writing too, I thought that I was going to be able to write in a certain way so that I could get my writing done so that this book would be finished by December. And I remember I was sending 10,000 words to my agent every so often. And my agent said to me, oh, you're going to be finished early. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even with the pandemic, because I weirdly was being really productive. And a lot of people with CPTSD, which is um, kind of a, a, a more, um, it's like, it's PTSD, but um, re- more related to an ongoing kind of trauma. Mm. Uh, I had read some things saying that people with CPTSD were coping with the pandemic better than people Um, who didn't have it. And so I was kind of wondering if that was the case for me because I was actually being extremely productive for the first couple of months of the pandemic. And and then for a while, I just lost it. I, in terms of just not being able to read, I, I just kept rereading Anna Karenina over and over again. I couldn't write. Um, But the thing about being stuck in that way in terms of writing is I think it can really help to kind of switch up your, switch up your, um, your goals or the things that you expect of yourself. Like I, you know, if you expect yourself to write a thousand words a day, usually, and you expect yourself to be able to write it while sitting at your laptop, you know, in an hour, maybe change that to 500 words. And if that doesn't work, if that's still too many, maybe change that to 300 words or 200 words while on the notes app 
on your phone while lying in bed before you go to bed, or change that to writing by hand, a hundred words. Just, I think one aspect of being adaptable in times of unpredictability is just trying different things. Yes. And so that's, that's been helpful too. Absolutely. I think it's so important because, and even if you have a routine, of course, I immediately, my brain latched on to you saying, I was going to deliver words in a, you know, being able to write in a particular way. And I thought, what was that way? You know, we want there to be this sort of silver bullet. Like if you, if you crack the code and figure this out and you can write in a certain way, then you'll be able to write that way forever. But that's not even true under the best of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be the case? Oh yeah, for certain. I mean, there will be a time where you find some way that works for you and you're like, oh, this is perfect. Like I, I, I found it. And then one day it just will not work for you anymore. Because of whatever reason, like it could be because something's changed in your life. It could be because the pandemic started. It could be because um, you broke your arm and it was your right arm and you're right-handed. Or it could be because you broke both of your arms and you can't type or handwrite anymore. Or... Um, it could be just because it just stops working and you don't know why. Um, just because life is unpredictable. And I think the more comfortable we get with that, the better. And the more able we're okay with making progress in different ways at different times. Yeah, and I think that a really important thing to try to get more comfortable with is that it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't even have to feel good. Like it doesn't have to feel, it doesn't even have to feel halfway good. Um, My therapist has this really great um, concept called option two, which is that um, when you get, when you get sick, in a chronic kind of way, there are often times when you are feeling really bad and you just feel like you can't do stuff. But if you're gonna feel bad anyway, you might as well choose option two, which is to do the thing like, you know, uh, do the work or Uh, whatever you were going to do and it's not going to be as good and it's not going to look like it was going to if you were feeling well but if you were going to feel bad anyway you might as well choose option two and do it and that's been something that I keep striving to hit because I think I'm always trying to only do things when I feel when I feel like it. Not necessarily when I feel 
super and super inspired, but when I'm not feeling terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But sometimes, uh, sometimes life stinks. And if life is going to stink anyway, maybe you might as well write a hundred words in the bathtub. I love the idea of option two, because I think this is something that people do to themselves. At least I see this, and I don't know if you see this in your groups as well, is that we have this illusion that we can only write when all of the conditions are perfectly aligned. Like it's a nice day. I slept well. I'm wearing the right thing. I have the right cup of tea. It's been prepared the right way. My head's in the right space. All of these, I'm having a good hair day, whatever it is. And then I'm allowed to write the scene. But if it's not there, then I don't get to do it. And then I'm going to beat myself up and feel worse about it and make it less likely that I'll want to do it in the future. Yeah. And I think that, I think that people can make this extra hard by making their workspaces Instagrammable or making their writing situations Instagrammable or, or even if they don't put it on Instagram, they make it Instagrammable, you know? And I'm guilty of doing this too. It's like, I'm like, okay, I'm like putting this crystal here and then I'm like spraying the air with this, with this room spray and then I'm playing this music and then, because you, you know, it's like if you have this routine and you make everything really nice, then it's the perfect, then the muse will come. Yeah. And, and then the problem is though, that uh, then what if you run out of the room spray or you, or you can't find the crystal or whatever, you know, does that mean you don't write? So. And the thing that's funny about it is it's, it's only for ourselves that we do these things. It's like, I, I tell people hundreds of times, like when you pick up a book off a bookshelf in a bookshop, you have no idea if they sprayed the room spray or not. You don't know if they were holding the crystal and you don't pick up the book, flip through it, look at it and decide if you're going to buy it or not based on whether they were holding the crystal when they wrote it. There's no way to know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I think that's also why when writers do these book events, people are always so curious and ask questions like, oh, what's your writing routine? Because yeah. They want to know, like, what's the secret of how so-and-so wrote this book? Because if maybe if I do that, maybe I used also use a black wing pencil or whatever, whatever, whatever. Like I, you know, if I imitate it, then I'll be able to write that caliber of book as well. Definitely. Definitely. Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) I think about this so much because it's like, you can't, there is no perfect routine and there is no perfect way to approach anything. I think there's only ways to think about it and ways to get comfortable with it. Has that been your experience? 
Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is like, it's fine to have a routine. Like I love routines. I love routines and rituals. And especially when I go to um, writing residencies, I love making routines and rituals because I'm already in a really nice place. Um, and they are already making delicious food for me. And it's already this sacred time set aside where I can, you know, make it as perfect as I can. But, you know, then there's, there are the other 340 days of the year or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, it doesn't have to look pretty to get done. Yeah. I think that maybe the theme of our conversation is flexibility. Yes. I think that's so important because I think that, but yet there's also this tension. So there's like, it feels like anything can be hijacked by the critic. You know, it's like you can have a really nice ritual that you set up to make your your space nice for yourself, but it can also get hijacked. Like you said, like if you run out of the room spray, is it then, oh, you can't write because you don't have all your tools. And it's the same way with, um, it can also get hijacked with, it doesn't have to look perfect, but there's also this, the, the critic can kind of give you a, oh, you don't have to do it. It's okay. Don't worry about it. It's like, there's always this, this, I don't know, this interplay between the desire to do it anyway, and also the desire not to overdo it. And do yourself in, I guess. And how do you play with that balance? Well, what do you mean by do yourself in? (laughs) I mean, like, I think that, like, when I've looked at writing goals that I've had, under certain circumstances, like if I'm on retreat, or I'm somewhere where I'm away from everyday responsibilities, I can write many more words per day than I can at home when I have responsibilities. And if I don't recognize that difference, then I can put myself into a state where I've got like a migraine, I can trigger a trigger depression, I can, you know, just write stuff that's terrible if I'm so wedded to the idea of continuing regardless of the circumstances. And yet I could also kind of not choose option two and say, oh, because I don't feel great, I shouldn't do anything at all. And I need to put myself back together. So it's like there's a sweet spot between underdoing and overdoing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was just using this um, analogy in a conversation with Jamie Attenberg the other day, but um, I... uh, I think it's kind of like when you do yoga and the yoga instructor tells you to push the stretch into where it's just on the line of a little bit uncomfortable, but not so hard that you hurt yourself or that you're in pain. So you want to push the, the stretch to the point where you're you're kind of teasing at your boundaries, where you're um, you're you're figuring out if your body is learning 
how to do something new or if you're 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 able to do this cool new thing but as soon as it starts like hurting hurting um and your body is giving you these signals like oh no you're really like fucking up right you're really fucking yourself up right now Mm -hmm. that's when you ease off that's when you back off and I think it's the same with writing like you want to you want to kind of push yourself to a certain point um where you can find these like cool things and and not not be so easy on yourself that you're never discovering anything cool but you also, I think, hopefully know yourself well enough to where you're not hurting yourself. And I think this is where, again, like I will always be an advocate for like therapy or like good therapy um, because finding out your own boundaries and finding out um, what things are healthy for yourself, um, that's really important in all aspects of life. But Um, And that includes writing as well. Definitely. I think one of the most valuable things I learned in doing a variety of work was sort of the somatic piece of sort of, there's a lot that your body can tell you, you know, even beyond this metaphor of just, okay, am I headed in the right direction or am I grinding something out that maybe I should back away from? And I feel like those signals are, were really, really quiet in the beginning, but they get clearer if you pay attention. Mm -hmm. What do you see? So as you're creating this, which I'm really excited about this, is it a course that you're creating or a community? Oh, well, so um, I'm working on something very cool, which um, is a, it's a membership, um, kind of a, a big thing um, yeah. that people can join. And inside there will be, this is my dream anyway, um, there will well, let's, be... Let's hold space for it. <laughs> <laughs> there will be uh, writing workshops um, that, that you will get as a part of it. Um, there will be a la carte one-on-one coaching. There will be... Um, access to rawness of remembering and dream hunting with limitations in terms of the, the, the online course that teaches about asking with limitations. Um, there will be guest writing workshops um, taught by um, really awesome writers. There will be a community forum that is not on Facebook. Um, and uh, there will be a, a discounts monthly from uh, BIPOC owned stores. Um, And yeah, those are uh, some of the things I'm thinking about and including, and hopefully we'll be be able to save the USPS um, a welcome, a welcome pack that is sent in the post. So that's the dream that I have right now. And I'm holding space for that. When are you thinking? When are you thinking that will will open? Well, um, I'm I'm starting working on it right now, so um, we'll see. What do you see as um, needs that people have that 
caused you to want to create a space for them? Like, where do you see people fumbling in this process? And what do you, what would you like them to know? I think a lot of it is, um, okay. So part of it is, um, the kind of core thing, which is being ambitious or self-identifying as ambitious, but worrying that their limitations are, are, are preventing them from ever being able to pursue their goals or their definitions of success or worrying that their dreams are too big mm-hmm. um, and that their limitations um, are, are going to prevent them from ever going after those dreams. And, um, or if they uh, think that they might be able to go after their dreams, not really knowing how to make that plan or how to, how to do it. Um, and so that's where the kind of core um, online course is in this membership that I want to create. Um, and then in, in coming off of that, I think the community is what I also really thought is missing from from this. Um, I want people to be able to share their experiences and to be able to cheer each other on and to be able to say, oh, this is what has helped for me and um, this may help for you. This is something that I found helpful. Um, Here's a resource that I've used. I have something that might help you. Here's what I have, you know, being able to share and exchange things. Um, And then there's um, the writing workshops that I have been teaching. So I have an early bird um, writing workshop registration right now um, that's about book proposal writing. And so that is... uh, one of the writing workshops that I've been teaching. I've been teaching them for a couple of months now, different writing workshops. And so um, I think that there are people who are not that interested in joining an MFA program and really want that kind of um, practical information about writing, but are missing... um, missing that practical information and also want a community. So there's that too. Yeah. I think we always think that we're the only one having the issue when most issues that people have when trying to write something, I mean, it's statistically very unlikely that we're the only person having that issue. Yes, exactly. There are a lot of people out there. Yep. And there's a lot of people out there who've written books and it's, and still, it's like we managed to convince ourselves, I'm the only one having this problem. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm the only one it's this hard for. But yeah, it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And just because it's hard, that doesn't mean it's not a reason to not do it also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I mean... And I think that uh, in particular, I'm really interested in making space for for um, BIPOC or people of color um, in this particular membership and in um, 
like, for example, um, this book proposal workshop, I feel like there's a lot of gatekeeping to that information. So there's, um, I have over 50 scholarships available right now wow. um, for that for that workshop. And, uh, and each workshop that I've um, taught in the last few months has had um, scholarships. So that's really important to me. And then also a portion of the revenue for each scholar, uh, for each workshop has also gone to uh, organizations that uh, I believe in and that are uh, help are um, important in these times as well. Definitely. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I mean, I think that this is another thing that, that I find interesting is the gatekeeping around information about putting books out or the perpetual vibe of it being a very small club, this very small exclusive club. When, you know, people who write books are big readers and so if we have more people writing books, you don't just read one book in your life and then say, okay, great, did that, I'm done. <laughs> like people who write always want to read more. So it's always better for more people to have access to the information and to want to be writing and we all benefit. So I don't, I just, it makes me so sad, this sense of like only certain people get to write. I'm like, no, no, everybody should be, if they want to, obviously, if someone doesn't want to, you know, Nobody should force them to write something. But if there is a, des a you know a genuine desire to write, then why not? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's been so exciting. I mean, there we have so much further to go, but it's been so exciting for me to see um, more black writers and black writers that I know um, appearing on the bestseller, the New York Times bestseller list right now. There's um, the book Luster. There is the, uh, the death of Vivek Oji. Um, and of course, there is The Vanishing Half, which is Britt Bennett's book um, that has been on the bestseller list for weeks now. Um, yeah. And, and that's really exciting to see. Yeah, I think there is, uh, yeah, I think there's a desire to hear more experiences and hear more people. And I think, you know, we just weren't very organized in how we made it clear that that was the case, which is really disappointing that that wasn't done better up to now. So if someone is facing down a challenging section of a book and they're scared to write it and they feel like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to get through this part. Do you have any words of wisdom for someone facing up to a point like that? Like they don't know, it might feel beyond them or it feels like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. Mm. When I am dealing with a section like that, I like to try and trick myself into doing it. Whether that mm -hmm. looks like um, writing it in an email to a friend or recording it as a voice memo to a friend or recording it as a voice memo to myself, writing it by hand. Mm. Just, just kind of trying to do it as a workaround so that it doesn't feel like I'm sitting at a laptop and I'm writing this difficult section. Um, 
I think that uh, kind of tricking yourself um, in some way, or you could try to outline it um, and then fill in the outline, just doing it in some way that feels easier and then using that to kind of get to where you ultimately want to go. Yeah, it almost has this quality of getting away with something while also getting it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people have such a, a thing, I think, about transcribing. And I think it's amazing mm -hmm. of, you know, starting with voice memos and that this can actually unlock a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is something I think that, you know, if a method isn't working, it's probably not the writer that's the problem. It's just not the right method for that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so, so much for, for coming on and for talking to us about writing difficult stuff, writing under difficult circumstances and, and yet still writing. It's been really such a treat. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.